Okay, let's just get on with it. Uh, a lot of people around Auckland, I wonder if you've picked up on this, still like Jesus. They may not be churchgoers, they may not be uh, hardcore Christians, but they still like Jesus. And, and their thinking goes something along these lines. Jesus was a nice man. He loved people. He was kind to people. Uh, and that's a pretty good thing to do. So, you know, uh, Jesus taught that golden rule, treat others as you would have them treat you. I like that rule. I'm going to take that from Jesus. But aside from that, aside from that moral compass that I can take from Jesus, I'm just going to move on. So, you know, people like Jesus, they think, here, here are some good ethics. Here's a way for me to live my life. But apart from that, I'm just going to move on from Jesus. I'm sure you've had conversations with people like that. I meet students like this around the university all the time. I meet neighbours who are thinking this. You talk to them about Jesus and they say, yeah, he's a nice person, but nothing more than that. I bring this up at the start this morning because the passage that we just had read for us, Ephesians 4 and 5, you would have noticed it was full of moral commands, wasn't it? Don't lie, don't steal, be kind to one another. And it would be easy for us to go home from this morning thinking that, well, Christianity is nice. It would be easy for us to go home thinking that, yeah, Christianity is this set of moral commands for us to follow and nothing more than that. But we need to remember right at the outset that Christianity is not one option for ethical living amongst many. Uh, it's not that we're in a world trying to figure out how to behave and Islam over here gives us one option, Hinduism gives us another option, Buddhism gives us an option and Christianity, well, there's another option. We just get to pick and choose which one we like. Or even better, rather than picking one whole system, we can take the bits that we like from Islam, we can take the bits that we like from Buddhism, we can take the bits that we like from Christianity... Uh, that's what so many people think these days. It doesn't work that way. Yes, Jesus was nice, but he wasn't simply a nice bloke. If you're here with us last week, you'll remember what we saw, that Jesus was a saviour, a rescuer, a hero. He came because we were deeply in trouble and we needed someone to save us. The problem, as we saw last week, is that we were dead dead in our sins and our trespasses. Every human had wandered off God's path. We'd cut ourselves off from the God who gives life and so we were dead in our sins. We'd become self-indulgent rather than God-centered. So open in your Bible to Ephesians 4 verse 17 and we'll see again how God describes what we were like. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Now notice there that same language of death that we heard last week. Cut off from the one who creates life, excluded from the life of God. And how did that happen? Well, verse 18 goes on. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. Our problem, apart from Jesus, is that we are dead because of ignorance and hard-heartedness. Or we can be even more precise, it is our hard-heartedness that causes us to be ignorant. This is a willful ignorance. The language of having a hard heart is about our unwillingness to listen to God. If you were with us throughout our Exodus series, you'll remember this language of a hard heart being applied to Pharaoh. He hardened his heart... And so he wouldn't listen to what God was telling him to do. 
He wouldn't let God's people go. His heart was hard. And so it is with us in the 21st century in Auckland. It's not that we haven't heard God's Word. Rather, we have heard it and it doesn't move us, it doesn't excite us, it doesn't delight us. Paul, who wrote Ephesians, writing elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, uses very similar language. He says, though they knew God, they didn't glorify God or show Him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. And notice what this is saying about humanity and all of humanity. Uh, All of us, deep down, or perhaps not so deep down, know God. All of us know that there is a creator that should factor into our life. This includes the agnostic and the atheist that you live next door to, or that you might be as you're amongst us this morning. We know that there is this God, but we choose to ignore Him. We replace Him and start worshipping and giving thanks to something else or someone else. All of humanity has heart in their heart toward the God who introduced Himself in nature, and in Jesus, and now in His Word, the Bible. After last week, I had a couple of conversations through the week with people who were troubled by my statement that apart from Jesus, the majority of this world is currently dead, including those who are following other religions. People are troubled by that because we think, no, everyone seems so innocent. They've never had a chance to hear the Gospel of Jesus. How can, how can there be something in them that they've done wrong? But notice what Romans 1 is saying, and, and this is the truth that God has for us. We, we are all without excuse. All of humanity knows from what God has done in creation that God exists. They've seen Him and they've chosen to suppress that truth. They've chosen to willfully ignore God. If you're here this morning and you know that your heart is not actually moved towards God, you're ignoring or opposing Him Perhaps you're just going through the religious motions and there's no affection behind it. Uh, The question for you is, what is it that you love more than you love God? What have you chosen to replace God with? What are you worshipping and living for instead of God? Uh, Try to take some time, maybe through the rest of this morning, maybe later this afternoon, and do think about that. What is it that you've replaced God with? Is it family, your children? Is it your car that you just love so much and you pour all your money into? Is it your home and the renovations? Is it your job? Is it yourself? It's worth identifying it because once you know what you've chosen to replace God with, then we can start to have a conversation and see how God is actually far more satisfying than anything we might replace Him with. Well, back in Ephesians 4, verse 19 describes what life looks like when someone's heart has become hard towards God, when they are willfully ignorant of Him and they refuse to humbly listen to Him. Have a look at verse 19. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Now that word promiscuity that's there, we we tend to use that word to speak about sex, don't we? promiscuous sex. But as you look at where this word is used elsewhere in Scripture, uh, 
you see that it's actually about more than just sex, it's about self-indulgence in whatever form that may be. A hard heart towards God creates a heart that needs to be satisfied by something else. The problem, though, is that there is nothing else in creation that's designed to satisfy our hearts. So we end up, if we're looking for that satisfaction elsewhere, greedily pursuing more and more, and just one bit more. No, I'm not satisfied just yet. Just give me a little bit more. I'm still not satisfied. I need more. Whatever that something might be, whether that is sex or food or money or victory, it's self-indulgence and it leads us to treat others badly. Now, this state of life, which is really not life at all, but death, this is what we need saving from. And not just because it's a bad way to live, but because this kind of life puts us squarely under God's anger. And one day He will act on and punish everyone who has made Him angry. But the good news that we heard from last week that came up as Catherine prayed for us earlier uh, is that Jesus... When we stop relying on our own good works and just trust Jesus, we are made alive. As Jesus himself taught us in John 5 verse 24, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. That's where we got last week and Paul reiterates that in Ephesians 4 verse 17 to 19. And you remember that we ended last week saying this kind of change in a person's life, going from death to life, should be noticeable. should be able to see that this has happened. And that's where we go from chapter 4, verse 20 onwards. Uh, Paul fills out what this change is going to look like. He's highlighted our old self-indulgence, and now in verse 20 he says, but that is not how you learned about the Messiah. Assuming you have heard about Him and were taught by Him, because the truth is in Jesus. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You're being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteousness and purity of the truth. The verbs that Paul uses here are verbs of clothing. He's talking about taking off and putting on. His language is about getting changed. Not just stripping naked so that you're not wearing anything anymore, but taking off kind of clothing that doesn't fit and putting on something that's more comfortable, that's more suitable for you. He says, take off those filthy rags that are they're full of holes, you know, they're caked in mud, they look terrible on you. And in their place, why don't you take this lovely, clean and crisp, freshly ironed shirt that fits you perfectly. Put that on instead. Take off from you those old ways of life, those ways that are governed by self-indulgence, those ways following after misplaced fleshly desires and instincts. And instead of that, put on a new person, this new life that God has created for you, a life governed by what is right. There are kinds of behaviour that fit with the new life that God has given us. We're being called this morning to clothe ourselves with those appropriate, comfortable behaviours. You know, it's, it is uncomfy, isn't it, when you're wearing some piece of clothing that doesn't quite fit right, uh, when it's, I don't know, perhaps you're in that shirt this morning or those pair of jeans that uh, you thought were okay, but you have actually lost a few kilos and they're falling off you. And so as you walk through the shops, you have to keep holding them up. 
or that dress that just tugs in the uncomfortable places. Um, it's not nice wearing clothing that doesn't fit. Uh, my shoes this morning don't quite fit too well. I went to Connect Group last week or the week before, I can't remember which one it was, wearing my Ugg boots because they're comfortable. They fit nicely. People had a bit of a laugh at me and thought, this isn't fashionable. What are you doing? You can't wear this. Like, No, I want to show that Connect Group is a place where you come as you are and feel comfy. And that's the kind of thing that God is saying to us this morning about our behaviours. Dress yourself rightly. Dress in the things that actually suit you for who you are. Now, these kind of behaviours, the changes in our behaviour, they won't come instantly. It it does take effort, otherwise Paul wouldn't have had to command it here. But we need to notice that at the heart of getting changed in this way, it's not just about trying harder. At the heart of this change is overcoming our ignorance that we saw earlier. We need to overcome that ignorance and realise who we are now in Jesus. See, notice verse 23. Right in the middle of being reminded to undress our old self and put on our new self, Paul says, you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. The problem is not just in our actions and our behaviours, but in our minds. Uh, We need to understand who we are. We need to come to realise an amazing truth of who this new self is that God has made us to be. It's by knowing clearly who we are that our behaviours then follow. Apparently, the soul-searching journey, travelling the world to discover who I am, that's quite popular in our modern society. Uh, but friend, you don't need to travel to India or America or Thailand to figure out who you are. If you jump down through all the specific commands that we find, have a look at Ephesians 5 verse 1. Listen to what God tells you about who you are. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And walk in love, as the Messiah also loved us, and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Who are we? We are now God's dearly loved children. I want to help us try to feel the weight of that this morning. So I've got a couple of slides for you. Let's have a look at the first one. Anyone know what that is? the sun yeah good good work good thinking that is the sun it's pretty amazing isn't it like it just looks in our sky like a little round flat disc but no the sun i don't there's people who will actually know the science of this but there's a massive amount of power in the sun all the time nuclear energy just going off you can see like a little blast up in the top right there and see what's up in that top right corner within the solar flare there Uh, that is the scale representation of earth all of our life is lived out on that little dot. Uh, That's pretty crazy. And this is the size of the sun that we revolve around. Go to the next slide. This is a shot of the Milky Way galaxy at night. It's pretty beautiful. Uh, It's a shame we don't see this many stars from a city. I do love getting out into the country and seeing it. Uh, Next slide has another shot of the Milky Way galaxy. That's what that says. The stars that we see at night all in that little red circle. And this is just one galaxy of, I don't know, millions? Are we in the billions of galaxies? I'm looking at some people that probably know the answer to these questions. I, I don't know the precise science. Our universe is massive. 
And I might say this to make you feel small, but to show you how big God is, there is a personal creative power behind all of this. Personal creative power who spoke and these worlds came into existence, who holds the stars in the palm of his hand and knows them all by name. He is the only living God, Yahweh. And you, if you are someone here this morning who trusts in Jesus, are his dearly loved son or daughter. Get the weight of that. To be the child of God is not just something that you hear and then move on past and get on with the rest of life. The personal creative power behind the universe knows your name. He knows when you lie down and when you get up. And he loves you dearly. You are his son, his daughter. Wow. Meditate on that truth regularly. Know who you are. And know that your place in God's family, that's been secured not because of anything that you've done, but because of Jesus, who in Ephesians 5 verse 2, loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. That language there of sacrificial and fragrant offering, that's coming from the Old Testament and it's used of sin offerings, uh, sacrifices that God's people would bring so they could be forgiven when they had wandered off God's path. What Jesus has done is become that sin offering for us so that our former way of life, that willful ignorance, its self-indulgence, all its associated behaviours, that could be forgiven. It's out of this identity, forgiven children of God, that our behaviour now flows. Here again, how Ephesians 5 verse 1 and 2 connect our identity to our behaviour. Therefore, Be imitators of God as, as dearly loved children. And walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us. A a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So we are called as children to imitate our Father. To live a life that is characterized by love. God's children love like he does. Now what's that going to look like in day by day life? Well, let's finally turn to those moral commands that we heard read out for us. Let's work through some of them. Now that we know that this is not one ethical option among many, nor a list of things that we have to do to earn a place in heaven, let's now turn and see the kind of clothing that will fit us and be comfy for us as God's children. We're going to look at three different aspects of loving people. How do we love people with our words? How do we love people with our hands? And how do we love people with our hearts? So first... God's children love like He does with our words. Ephesians 4 verse 25. Since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbour, because we are members of one another. How easily do we fall into lying, hey? Uh, In my pride, I often hide the truth. I don't correct someone when they infer something that might not actually be completely correct about me. Uh, For instance, I might be having a conversation and someone might infer that I've read a particular book that I haven't actually read. I won't stop and correct them. It would be so easy for me in that conversation to just speak up and say, no, no, I haven't actually read that book. I've heard that it's good, but I don't know personally. But my pride, my pride gets in the way. I want these people to think that I've read widely. 
to think that I am an intelligent person who, who can speak into what this book is saying. Now, that might sound like a really trivial example. Uh, there are much bigger lies that you could tell. And perhaps you're in a situation and a pattern of life where you are surrounded by big lies. But I wanted to make the point on the small example because being God's child does affect every single part of our life, the small as well as the big. It affects how I respond when my computer runs really slowly or when that client is late for the meeting or when the kids aren't sleeping too well. It's in all those small moments of life that we show ourselves to be God's children. Lying in any form of lying in any stage of life is not suitable for God's children. God, our Father, well, He's characterised by truth-telling. Lying, it's not something that comes from God, I mean, that comes from the devil, who is spoken by Jesus to be the father of all lies. So particularly, as we think about lying, we're to be honest with one another within the church. Uh, see the end of verse 25. We're to tell the truth because we are members one of another. A reason for us to speak the truth is that every other Christian is as vital to you as part of your body. That's a really profound truth about the church, and I wish we had more time to dwell on it this morning, but have a look around you. See the other people who are here. Do it. Have a look. Don't look at me. Look, look at each other. Uh, and think about the fact that these people, you are not actually completely you without them. That's what it's saying here. You are members one of another. That these people are your body parts and you are theirs. We need one another. That's a profound reality about the church that we find here in Ephesians and that drives us to therefore speak the truth to one another, to make sure we're communicating well, that we're not letting our pride or our shamefulness uh, lead us to being dishonest. Let's be honest with one another and not hide away things with lies, whether they be motivated by pride or shame, whatever else might motivate so the question for us this morning, how, how is your truthfulness going? Take stock. Are there any lies that you have been telling that you actually need to go and correct with someone? Could you do that today? Is there a conversation you can have down in Moe's Nest where you can correct someone's uh, misunderstanding of who you are, that you've, you've lied to them, you've told them something that's untrue? Go and correct that. Do it as soon as you can. Falsehood doesn't fit with being God's child. We are truth-tellers. There's still more to say about how God's children love with our words. Have a look down at verse 29. No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. See, words matter. Don't know. They're powerful. Uh, you know this from your experience, I'm sure. Words can hurt. But on the flip side of that, well-timed words can also be a cause of great blessing to someone. So I don't want to get bogged down in this verse discussing in detail what kind of talk is foul language. You know, is it blasphemy, swearing, lying? That conversation of what constitutes foul language could go on for a while. Uh, instead, if we focus on the positive... We see here that God's children are to use our words to bless, to give grace to those who hear us. Um, I'm the youngest of three boys. My mum, as the father of three sons, had a saying. See if you can finish it off for us this morning, if this is uh, a common saying amongst mums. If you can't say something nice, 
Exactly. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Uh, That's kind of the point of these verses. All I'd want to add is that our nice words, again, are not just for the world in general, like they are, we, we ought to speak kindly and nicely to the whole world, building up everyone, but it is particularly for within the church. You notice we are to speak what is good for building others up. Now, that's language that Paul has used in the first half of chapter 4 to talk about the church as we grow together to become more like Jesus. So we're to speak words amongst ourselves that help others to become more like Jesus. What's that going to look like? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, we read that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There are four things that we can do with our words as we point people to Scripture. We can teach, we can help one another to see new things about what the Scriptures are saying. We can correct one another. We can tell one another when we've wandered off the path and we're not living the way that we should, when we're not living like Jesus, and we can say, oi, get back, get back onto this path. We can rebuke which is that moment of just saying, you're not in a good place, you need to stop. And we can train in righteousness, working together with the Scriptures uh, to see how we can grow more and more like Jesus. These are the ways we should be using our words, reminding one another of Scriptures. Paul says later on at the end of chapter 5, one way we can do this is by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. As we gather as church and use our words to sing praises to God, we're reminding one another of the truths of the Gospel. This is what our words are for. Speak the truth to one another in love. And to give us extra motivation in the use of our words, see how verse 30 really ups the ante of what's coming out of our mouth. It says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. The idea of spirit is like breath. And so here, Paul connects this to speech. Uh, I don't know if you've tried, maybe give it a try. You can't actually say words without breath. If you hold your hand in front of your mouth while you're speaking, you can feel the breath come out. Words and breath go hand in hand. Words and spirit go hand in hand. And so Paul's saying here, the breath by which you now speak as a child of God, it's not just your own. It's God's holy breath. Elsewhere, Peter will say something similar and encourages those who speak, speak as if you're speaking the very oracles of God. Don't grieve God's spirit by speaking rotten stuff. Don't give God bad breath. How have you used your words in this past week? Do people know you as someone who will always speak positively into their life? Do they get excited to see you coming because they know, oh, here's someone who will be kind, who will build me up, who will help me to be a better person, who will help me to uh, be a better Christian, growing to be more like Jesus? How can you use your words as we go to Moa's Nest later on to help people become more like Jesus. Let's have that filter in our head and think through, am I speaking what is true? Am I speaking what will give grace to those who hear? Well, there's number one. God's children love like He does with our words, uh, speaking truth and grace. The second one. God's children love like He does with our hands. Uh, Have a look at Ephesians 4, verse 28. The thief must no longer steal... Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now, as you first hear that, you might be thinking, oh, sweet, this one's easy. I'm not a thief. That's good. I'm I'm settled. Uh, Or perhaps you're thinking, oh, no, I am a thief. I need to change. Uh, And that might be in the small areas of 
stealing, you know, whether you're robbing your employer of uh, the, the wage that they're paying you by taking longer breaks than you should or by sending text messages while you're at work, uh, or if you are on that larger level of you've robbed a bank this past week, we should probably have a conversation after the service and we can talk through repentance and fixing that one up. Uh, whichever one you are, this verse does have something to say to all of us. So it doesn't just end with stop stealing. There's a positive principle in this that we can all learn from. Uh, the contrast as well to stop stealing isn't just work to provide for yourself. That would make sense. Stop stealing, but work so that you don't have to steal anymore. But no, the contrast goes even further. So God, our Father, is more than just a providing for himself kind of God. God is generous, really generous. And so as his children, we are to be as well. We're to do honest work. Not so that we can afford that next holiday that we've been dreaming about for years. Not so that we can put that next mod on our car or buy a new car to replace the car that is still working just fine. Not even merely so that we can have food on the table and a roof over our head. We, we do need to work to provide those needs for ourselves. But Paul's encouraging us, we're to work hard so that we can share with those who are in need. It's the goal, the purpose of working with our hands. Now, I don't know how we're going at this. I, I don't know your income, I don't know your spending habits, I don't know your generosity. Uh, we do tend as Christians to keep those things pretty hidden from one another. I'm not sure how healthy that is. Yes, we find in Matthew, Jesus saying, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. But perhaps there's some space to invite at least one or two others into your life and your budget and, and share with them so there's some transparency and, and you can be called up on whether you are perhaps being greedier with your money than you ought to be. I, I think the Bible takes greed really seriously. Uh, and we need to work hard as a Christian community to think through how we can reflect that and not go harder on bigger, more visible sins than on greed, which just an undercurrent of our society. We need to think hard on that. I, I don't have a solution for us, uh, but from personal experience, I do have a couple of people that uh, see my budget and we talk through together where the money's going. I found that helpful as I try to counter the greed in my own heart. Um, but I don't know where you guys are up to with it, so let me just put these questions out there and, and see, let God's Spirit do whatever work that He will. Uh, the questions that this passage raises for us, is, is your attitude to work self-indulgent? Do you work with a view to generosity? Do you think about your money as your own hard-earned cash? Or if you're not currently earning money, is your use of your time self-indulgent or generous? Are there ways that you can get out and do some work with your hands in order to be generous to those in need? Let's work on this as a community. Let's Build one another up in love as we speak the truth and speak words that give grace, making us more like Jesus. Another way that God's children love like he does with our hands, it's there in chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. And we notice here that same basis for our ethic that we've seen throughout. We're on about behaviours that really fit with who we are, as is proper for saints. And there is a proper use of our sexual bodies. Sexual immorality, 
is any kind of sexual behaviour outside of a faithful marriage bond. Sex is designed by God as a good thing to unite husband and wife. So if you're a Christian and you're here this morning currently in any kind of adulterous sexual relationship, that needs to stop. Repent, confess, do it today. doesn't fit with being God's child. Go to the cross of Jesus, throw yourself upon his mercy. Uh, If that is something that you need to repent of and change, again, come and have a chat to myself or someone amongst us that you trust, maybe it's your connect group leader. Uh, We need to be honest about these things with one another. Take holiness seriously because we are God's children. We need to live lives that fit with that. Notice with sexual immorality, uh, it's not even meant to be a hint of it amongst us. There should be nothing that could lead people to say that amongst us as a church, this stuff is going on. Because God is a faithful God. And so we as his children are called to be faithful to marriage. If you're single amongst us, that means that you need to pursue celibacy and do so in a way that is honouring marriage around you. Uh, Watch what you're looking at with your eyes. Watch where your thoughts are going. If you're within marriage as well, is there someone you're thinking about more than you should, that is leading you down that path of potential sexual immorality. Watch your mind, watch your eyes, watch what you're doing with your hands. Let's act in ways that are proper for saints. God's children love like he does with our hands, working hard to be generous and using our hands to love one another within marriage. Third one, finally, God's children love like he does with our heart. Ephesians 4 verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Thought anger was a bad thing that I'm meant to be avoiding. Well, key to understanding this command is the fact that it's a quote from a psalm. Paul is drawing here on Psalm 4, and if we look back at Psalm 4, The psalmist there is angry at some injustice that has been perpetrated against him. He has been shamed, he's been lied about. Now there are plenty of bad reasons to get angry, self-indulgent reasons, but it is right to be angry about injustice. God, our Father, is terribly angry at injustice. And so we're to be like him. We're to hate the things that God hates. But like God, we're to be slow to anger. And recognising our place as children and God as the Father, we're not to take matters into our own hands, but in our anger, we're to cry out to God for justice. That's how we avoid sinning in our anger. That's how we be angry and do not sin. We leave room for God to take vengeance. For he has said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And we notice this in the psalmist. Uh, In Psalm 4, the psalmist follows up this statement about being angry and not sinning with, uh, ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Pray to God for justice. Leave it to Him to act. That's the way to not let the sun go down on your anger. And the way to stop the devil deceiving you into acting on your anger with sinful words or with violence. What makes you angry? Is it good reasons to grow angry, injustice in the world, or self-indulgent reasons? Do you act on your anger, or do you pray about it? 
verse 31 to 32. All bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. If we hold on to anger for too long, particularly self-indulgent anger, that leads to a heart of bitterness. We start to resent people for the things they've done to us. That can easily lead next to shouting and yelling and then to slander as we tell others all about what so-and-so did or said about us. And friends, that's not an attractive way to be as a community. That's not suitable clothing for God's children. Instead, see the contrast there, we ought to clothe ourselves with kindness, with compassion. That language of compassion, it's like we need to always put ourselves in the other person's shoes. Why have they acted like they have towards us? Don't assume ill intent, don't assume anything about their motive? Why have they acted like they have towards us? Is, is there something else going on in their life that is stressing them out and I'm the recipient of that stress? It, perhaps there's something in the past that has made them respond to me in a way that doesn't make sense to me, but if I knew their past, then I'd be able to understand it. Take that time to listen, to assume well, to love the other person who you feel like getting angry at. How can you show love towards them? How can you bless them even as they cause harm to you? It's from this compassionate heart that we forgive one another. And there's a high standard on that forgiveness, isn't there? To the measure that God in Christ forgave you. How are you tracking on this? Is there anyone this morning that you are bitter towards, that you need to forgive? Anyone you can have a conversation with today to resolve that issue. It could be a hard conversation to have, but it is worthwhile. Um, I, I thought for many years that I didn't have anyone I was bitter towards. Uh, and then one day I was sitting with a couple of friends and we were asking these questions of one another and I realised, no, there is actually someone. I need to deal with it. Uh, it took me about three months to finally have that conversation and, and take this person out for a coffee, sit down with them and say, look, I feel like we're not right. This was a fellow Christian and so we ought to have been in unity together as we worked together for the purpose of the gospel in the world. Uh, it was a humbling thing to have to go out of my way and say, look, have, have I done something to cause this? What's actually going on between us? But through having that coffee together, we were able to pray together at the end and now we're on good terms. Is there someone for you that you need to have that kind of conversation with? Someone that you've been harbouring bitterness towards, that you've been resenting, that you've been angry at. How can you go about being kind and compassionate and forgiving them? God's children love like He does with our hearts. Angry at injustice, yet forgiving. Well, we're done. There's so much more in Ephesians 4 and 5 about the ethical implications of our life. It's all based around that central principle. It's about our identity. For those who are not relying on good works to earn favour with God, for those who are trusting solely in Jesus to save them, we are the beloved children of the Creator God. So, as you go through the week, again, read through the whole of Ephesians. Take 15, 20 minutes to do that and see if you can think through the rest of those ethical implications in chapters 4 to 6 and go, 
How does this spring from my identity? How is this the kind of behaviour that fits with being God's child? And let's get out there together as a church, properly clothed, dressed in what fits, dressed in what is comfy, imitating our Father God by loving like He does with our words, with our hands, with our hearts. Let me pray.